0: My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, as we continue on through the book of Genesis. But before that, I do have some announcements today. Like, I'm sure it'll come out in like the tone of my voice, but I am not in the best place right now, and I'll explain what that is in a second, but like, you know, if that's something, you know, it's something I need to address, it's something I need to talk about, so it's affecting my performance, I'm doing the best I can, like, uh, just to be crystal clear here, like, I normally will spend several hours, like, reading over the scripture we're going to be doing for the day and writing notes and looking up research and commentaries to make sure I get all my information right. And I've done some of that, but like, it's not as good as it's normally going to be like uh, stuff. I I stopped because I just, I wasn't feeling it, but at the same time, I knew I also had to do this. So it was either give half-hearted notes or just read the word and just see what he says. And that's where I'm at. So, there's that. I'll explain in a second. The other thing, little mini announcement, is um, uh, for those of you who maybe podcasting isn't your favorite thing in the world, but you can do it through YouTube. However, that works, I don't know. But like, it's something I do want to bring up. Is like uh, what has just been added uh, to the Anazel Ministries podcasting uh, dash amp uh, YouTube page are all the episodes from "Let Nothing Move You," along with. L- every single episode from the other podcasts on the network so if that's something that interests you uh, we are trying to build there so just give a chance check them out and once again it won't be any visual things it'll just be like a static image and my voice like you know you're used to with the podcast here so there's that so why am i so down why do i sound so depressed well it's because i am um it's depression that was once anger I've tried to rationalize what's going on, I've gotten mad, I've gotten upset, and today I'm just a little down. But why is that, why Why am I down? Uh, well, some of you do know, because I've shared with this, uh, with uh, some people who listen, uh, I had an opportunity for a potential like job after seminary that sounded amazing. And uh, before I go any further, um. We will get into Genesis 24. I'll do my best to leave like a, a timestamp or something. If there's someone who wants to go forward through this and I say, oh, you don't care about what I have to say about what I'm going through. but Like, hey, if it just gets too much for you, like I understand. I want to give you that timestamp. So I will do my best to put that down there. And another thing too, I will not mention this organization by name. I will do my best to be as vague as possible to offer them some respect that in my opinion, they haven't earned. But at the same time, I still believe in some of what they're doing. So I don't want anyone, I don't know, (laughs) there's not enough people that probably know this organization that would pull funding or something like this just because they're outraged on my behalf, which I'm grateful there have been very uh, many people that I've told this to that have been on my side, that have been encouraging me through this process. So I'm extremely grateful for that. But I don't want that zeal to be taken out against an organization That is still, in my opinion, doing good work, just not the way I would like them to. So that's that. Uh, so basically, I'd gone to a luncheon uh, this organization was doing to um, try and get people interested. And I was super interested in it. It's uh, targeting a region of America that uh, the gospel is not as present in as it could be. There's a lot of need for good churches, good pastors, good leaders. And, you know, that's kind of something that I've, through the ages in seminary here, like, even though it's only been a year and a half, like, I kind of think that's where I'm being led towards. And it sounded pretty, perfect. It's like, uh, sign me up. Yeah. It's going to be work. It's going to be, it's not going to be some church where I'm probably going to have the most stable salary or anything like that. But, but still it, it's something that I would have a guaranteed job. I'd be able to focus on that ministry. Like they help you with fundraising, like, and then before all that, it's like, they want you to graduate, which perfectly reasonable. And, uh, for, we have it, the college here at the SPTS. Uh, We have a Boys College, which is undergraduate, and we have the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is our, you know, uh, MDiv programs, all that mess. So, they were offering two different internships for that, one being like, hey, like, come here for the summer for a little bit. You know, if you're a Boys student, you're young, and, you know, we'll pay for your food, your utilities, your housing. The only thing they don't pay for is travel, and I think they're still offering a lot. So, even if they're not offering that, it's still a pretty good deal. And like I said, I get you through the ministry, see what it's all about. And it's like, oh, OK, well, I don't qualify that because I'm a Southern student. OK, that makes sense. I'm OK with that. Then the next thing they do is they, a- after you graduate and you become a member of this program, they offer about eight months of training and instruction uh, at this location that they're at. And the end goal, once again, same thing uh, before all that. They pay for your food. They pay for your utilities. They give you money on top of this internship. like. And then they help you with the fundraising because it's not going to be it's not going to be enough money, but it's going to be more money than you expected. So they're going to help you get that. And they've had no one who's ever had an issue with it before. So that was so great. I was looking forward to that aspect of it. And then someone in the luncheon, when the Q&A section came up, asked a question that I never once would have considered because it, it doesn't make logical sense for me for this to have been an issue. And they asked a question where... Um, the The speaker there uh, was asked, um, "Hey, uh, you've been talking about because one of the things they were talking about there is like, hey, we, you've got room for your spouse. We'll have a place for you guys to stay. If you have kids, we can watch over them. But there wasn't any mention of anything besides that. It says it sounds like it's just for married people. Is that true?" And he said, "Plain as day, yes, this is not for single people. And for those of you who don't know me that well, I'm I'm single." Like I have been for quite some time. And I was in complete and utter shock when I heard that. I, I wasn't ready to hear that because why should that be some obstacle in the way? Like I've got the will, I've got the drive, I've got the ability. I've even got the ability to get money to fundraise for all this. I just have to ask people and get rid of my pride to do so. It'd be perfect. This Everything is working towards this. I'm like five steps away from like signing up right then and there and declaring my lifelong devotion to this idea until that is said. And then of course, <laughs> the, the, the speaker has the gall to say, yeah, sure. You know, people may raise objections, you know, like, you know, uh, Jesus and Paul weren't married. And once again, I'm not saying I'm Jesus or Paul, but how are they, how can you look at that and just say, well, there are exceptions to the rules. Like, oh, do we know the marital status of every other disciple and apostle that came along the way? are, are we going to discount all the good work that was done for Jesus by the Catholic church who has priests who don't marry, uh, forced to by the institution, which I disagree with, but since they're doing it, I'm glad for those who are faithful to that practice. (laughs) It's a call to to say that. And I, listeners, I was, I I mean, there's no other way to say this. I was pissed. I was extremely and utterly pissed to hear that. And so some of you, that may be a little squeamish uh, to hear that word. And I apologize. It's not my intention, but like, I'm trying to be honest with you about how I actually felt in that moment. It's like, How dare you say such a thing? How can that be an obstacle? And they they have reasons. I will give them this. I don't think they're good reasons, mind you, but they have reasons. And one of the reasons being is that it's a lot easier for a pastor who has a wife, who has someone who works with faithfully for years, has proven that with her, has even proven it maybe with children too, that he has someone he can rely on and support him, like right there in that scenario. And that makes sense to me. It's like, It's a lot easier to get a job done when you have help. It's not as easy to do when you're alone. Now, I get that. But still, never Paul never had that problem while he was preaching. Jesus never had that problem when he was preaching. I mean, sure, there were bits of loneliness, I'm sure, for the both of them. But they they got over it and they they spread the gospel. And then another thing they brought up, which is where I really have an issue with this, is... Well, it's just so much easier for someone who is uh, not married to you know, have accusations thrown against them or easier for them to just engage in improprieties that a married uh, pastor wouldn't. And I also took immense offense to that. So all I have to do is open up the newspaper or look things up to see, oh, married pastor, involved in an affair, married pastor, engaging in homosexual relations with a congregation member or a prostitute or what have you. And that's just, that's just the sexual side of things. Forget embezzling or anything like that. (laughs) And my, my brain broke when I heard that. I was, it was like, I was listening to them, the, the, the ears and mouth of madness. It's like, how could that happen how could you let this be a sticking point that much that you are saying things that don't make logical sense and that's again I've been very blessed <laughs> I'll joke about the other time all the time that I have very negative qualities from both of my parents this is one way I have been very immensely blessed is that both my parents in different ways are very logical people if something doesn't make sense then something's got to change because you got to start making sense or what have you in that scenario and I'm very Like I said, I'm very grateful I had that instinct in me because if I see a flaw, my instinct is to fix the flaw. That way things can run more smoothly. Not to say that I'm so superior because I see this that you can't, but like I want things to run well. I want things to be done well. That's why when I have an issue, I do my best to solve it. If I can't solve it myself, I go to someone who can. Eventually, in my pride, it takes a while, but I go there. And once again, th- this guy doesn't know me from Adam. He didn't know that he was directing this towards me or anything like that. Oh, but another thing, I, I forgot to mention this to a couple of people. <laughs> but you have that difference between a boys and the Southern students. What a boys ones, he was like, yeah, you guys can come if you're not married. You're just in that stage of your life. You're young. Oh, which was another huge blow to me in that regard. Like, and then he had, once again, the utter gall to bring up something like, oh, hey, there's a lot of young girls at our churches here who aren't married. So hinty hinting, maybe if you go up there, you'll find your wife. And oh, it's a shame my daughter's already married right now. So I, I wanted to say in that moment, and I'm so, I, I'm so angry with myself and yet so pleased that I managed to hold back because I wanted to so bad. It's like, are you a pimp? Is that what you are? And I know that's probably not the most edifying thing I, I could have thought at that time, but like, is that how you view women? Is that how you view your wife as you were hoping that her parents or whatever were having her around just so they could entice you? And actually, in light of what we're studying today in Genesis, <laughs> it's so, so different. And it... it <laughs> It blows my mind that that was the thing. It's like, I, I once again, I don't know this man. Maybe I'm misreading some things. This is one conversation, uh, very one-sided that I've had with him. So maybe I'm overblowing things out of proportion. Maybe I should be offering a little more grace. And I'm just saying some things that are hurt. I, I admit that fully. And if I am, that's something I need to repent of. And there's this been a lot I've needed to repent of in these past couple of days because of this issue. But anyways. It just just killed every bit of hope I had to get there into this organization, which I wanted to more than anything. It felt like the perfect fit. And I'm so angry and upset. I called my dad um, just to talk to him and he, he counseled me very well. He's very loving. He was very kind. You know, he brought up like, hey, like I know you don't want to hear this right now, but it is it's a good thing that you got told no here because obviously you you wouldn't have worked well together with them. I called my old pastor uh, who has since retired uh, and talked to him about that. He kind of said similar things. He got to encourage me with the story of a very similar story in some respects, although he was married at the time where he thought he'd be going to that same region and it just didn't work out and he didn't understand why. And instead he went to where he was, where eventually he became my pastor, which I'm very grateful for. But like in the moments, that thing of, well, I have the will, I have the drive, I can do this, Why? here am I, send me, and I'm not sent to where there's a, what seems like the perfect opportunity. And I know I'm speaking from a very limited point of view, and I know all these things logically, but it still doesn't make sense to me at the moment. So I'm wrestling with it, I'm struggling with it, and I want to be as honest with you all as possible. Like I, in these past couple of days, have dealt with a lot of of self-hatred, of a lot of um, anxieties, from things that this brought to the surface. like it it is a huge part of my life that I have been single forever, as long as I've been alive. as long as I've been at the age where I potentially could have done it, it has always been a sticking point that it, it's never proceeded past where I wanted things to go. And I know, logically, once again, That it's good that those relationships never went further beyond what they did because I wasn't meant for those women. And they had something, God had something else for them in mind and he had something else for me in mind. But it's still that sticking point of like being seen as a pariah in the church for not being married as we hold, rightfully so, marriage as a beautiful thing that is a gift from God. And I think marriage is a wonderful, beautiful thing. Like my parents aren't perfect. I've said it before, but they still love each other. There are things I'd love for them to change about their relationship and I think they should be better about, but I know they still love each other and they modeled a good enough marriage for me to go, I desire that thing. And I've had plenty of other people who become parents to me in other ways that like, why can't, why can't I have what they have? Why is that taken away from me? Why am I called right now in this moment to singleness? And it's like, is that a forever thing? Is that a just until tomorrow thing? Like... It's been a it feels like a forever thing my entire life but I don't know that for sure. So all those anxieties like am I ever going to be good enough, you know, to have a wife, is there anyone out there who who would ever love me like that? All those things that once again this guy didn't know he was going to cause those feelings to rise up in me that day. But as the catalyst of those feelings, it is very difficult for me not to be angry. At him for a lot of this. Another thing, too, is like, once again, just being seen as a pariah in church, like uh, going back to marriage. What's in marriage is something I desire. Marriage is something we should look for. But the church has turned marriage into an idol, as one of my other friends has rightfully said while I was talking with him about this. And by turning it into an idol, we turn it away from what it should be. And that's something that honors God. That's something that looks to Christ and the church being united one day that's something we should all look forward to as a good thing that exists in this world. Not, not everyone's called to it, but we're all called to appreciate and help those who are engaging in it. So it brings up questions like, well, if, I'm, if I graduate from seminary and I'm still not married, which probably at this point is what's going to be happening unless something drastic happens in the next couple, uh, year and a half or what have you. If I graduate on the time that I want to, like, what happens when I'm interviewing for a church, and is like, oh, uh, notice you don't have a wedding band, or uh, you haven't mentioned your wife at all, or your kids, and I was well, like, I can't talk about people who don't exist. Like, and they decide, well, we don't think you're a good ch- fit for our church because we need someone who's married. We want someone who's married is what they should be saying. And you know what? As much as I hate that line of reasoning, I, that, that's their right. It's their church. I mean, chances are, if that's a stickling, uh, you know, uh, a big point there for them not wanting me, we weren't going to get along, but it's still unfair. (laughs) I mean, can we talk about that? It's unfair. And maybe, maybe there's a life out there and then assuming uh, a giant omniverse of multiple realities where I'm married right now and I don't have the same cares that I have for this issue because I got married earlier. And, you know, good for that other Christian. But for me, I mean, sometimes it takes you, as we've said before on the show, just like, being affected by something to actually understand what needs to change. Sometimes you can just be perfectly objective. You know, I, I have never once murdered someone. I've been angry at someone. And I'm guilty of that sin and that temptation. But I'm not, I've never once taken someone else's life in in a sinful manner, and not even in a justified manner. I'll put it that way too. But I know inherently that's something I should never engage in. But for something like this, a lot of people, is just not on their radar. And it makes sense. Why not? Because the vast majority of people in the church get married. So you just get the single people like me who are stuck at the side and they don't know what to do with you. It's like, some people just look at you kind of weird. It's like, well, what's wrong with you? Well, why isn't God giving you a wife? Why isn't God giving you a family? It's like, is there something you're doing on the side? Are you, are you some creep? Are you some pedophile? It's like, oh, oh, uh, uh all the times i've worked with children too along the way which i've loved doing i've i've worked with you know the the infants i've worked with the younger kids i've worked with uh our fifth and sixth graders back in the day when that was in route 56 i've worked with middle schoolers high schoolers and it's been a very rewarding experience every time but there's also been people at that same time who would look at me and go i don't know about that guy which I'm not offended at originally, you should have that thought. You should have that worry, that concern. A, a, A church that does not protect its children is not a good church. But that's also why I had to have the background checks I did to make sure I was good enough to be around those kids. Now, you should question things that are out of the ordinary. I agree with that. That's a very logical thing to do. But you should also accept reality. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the church don't accept reality because they think, oh, reality should mean you should just be married. You know, as if somehow I'm the one person in the history of the world that has told God that his will not be done and his will was never done. You know, as as if I'm the one person who God said, Christian, you were supposed to get married at 22 uh, because that's what I ordained. And somehow I'm stronger than God that I caused that not to happen. Does that break anyone else's brain to think that, Somehow I'm the only person strong enough to do that. Do I have that much power? But we don't, people don't think about that logically. They think, well, everyone should be married. They should be like this. So why aren't you? Why don't you just pair up with someone else and just get married? Like, Which is a terrible idea and something that has actually been said to me in the church. It's like, how could I ever inflict that pain on a woman like that just to get married, just to look good in the church and to not truly love her as she deserves and for me to not be loved in return? That is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. One of the most hateful things I've ever heard that came from someone who thought they were thinking truth, uh, speaking truth. So I'm trying not to let my anger rise too much in this, um, but it's also affecting me. There's more I can go into detail about, but I've also been talking for 20 some minutes about this. And for those of you who stuck around, I'm extremely grateful for you doing so. Uh, I'd appreciate your prayers right now. Like I'm in a bad place. I mean, there's no other way around it. Like, I need good people out there who want good for me, who are praying for me. And I don't ask that often as much as I should, but that's something I do need right now. And I'm, for those of you who are doing that, I really appreciate that. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for listening. And with that, we will finally go into Genesis 24. We'll be starting through verses one through nine. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter, this matter. So one thing that has been very apparent throughout Abraham's story as our main protag for this section of Genesis is that God's promises to him were being fulfilled in front of his own eyes. But he was still just as human as the rest of us, man. He got old. It's not his fault. It's what every single human being has done. Jesus in the form of God and man, aged like no one escapes from it in this life. And at that moment in time, what we see is that he knows that logically, in order for him to have as many descendants through Isaac that are promised, Isaac needs a wife. Isaac is called to be married. God has ordained such a thing. So what is he supposed to do? And before we get any further, this is, once again, it's not a racial thing. Abraham has nothing against the race of the Canaanites. He has everything against the culture and hearts of the Canaanites. He knows by marrying one of them, chances are this woman is not going to love God. She's not going to respect Isaac as the leader of the house. And may even introduce foreign gods to him. Now, that does not mean that other women may not do the same. But Abraham knows, with probably like a 99.9% accurate take, there is not a woman fit among the Canaanites to be the wife of his son. And that's a call you've got to make. There are plenty of people out there who aren't good for you. I've been in that scenario with women that I thought were good until I learned a little more about them and go, oh, you just said you went to church. You just said you cared about the Bible. You just want someone for a fling. And hey, if I were a lesser man, I could have done that, but I didn't. That's not what Abraham wants. That's not what my parents wanted for me. Hence why I didn't do those things. Hence why Isaac is not going to do those things. So instead, Abraham, knowing for the most part that members of their extended family are a bit more reasonable and rational and more open to hearing about God, Lot being the big example there, goes to them instructing a servant. Now, we don't really know the servant's name. It's possible this is Eliezer, who is mentioned earlier in Genesis as being like the chief among Abraham's servants. But like without an explicit name, I'm not going to say his name, even though it would be more, it would sound better to my ears to call him by a name versus the servant because, you know, this was a human being who deserves to be called as such. But the scripture does not record it for whatever reason. So I will refer to him as the servant. So Abraham, knowing that he's been blessed by all this, asks his servant to find a wife for his son. And to do so, they do uh they g engage in a ritual, uh kind of a, a custom of the time where the, this putting the hand under the thigh was a way to be, hey, up close and personal. It's a way to show, hey, there's no weapon hidden under my thigh, uh, underneath the clothes that I have. We are making an oath together here. We mean what we say, that closeness together. By breaking this agreement, I have proven I can't be trusted and no one should have me in their presence, especially as close as this. So that's what they do. And in so doing... We get to the point where the servant has a very reasonable thing to bring up. It's like, well, what if she's not willing to follow me? Well, if she's not, then don't bring Isaac there. Abraham knows Isaac has not been promised the land where his other family members are at. Isaac has been promised the land of Canaan. He doesn't know how it's going to be. He doesn't know that there's going to be a 400-some-year ordeal in Egypt where they're under the oppression of the Egyptians after some time. like, But he knows Canaan is where they're supposed to be even though Canaan is not a land filled with people who uh, worship God. So he makes the servants swear he's not going to do that. The wife has to come to him. If she doesn't, she's not worthy of being that wife because she's not going to follow after Isaac, who will remain in this land. A wife who wouldn't do this in a scenario would say, well, why don't we just go back home to my family? And not, not to say she's wrong to feel homesick for such people. These are her family members after all. But there is a greater purpose in store for her to be in the land of Canaan. And the same since there, I've been on the other side of the scenario where there was a woman I was really interested in, in college, and she wanted to be in the mission field. I have never felt that call. I'm pretty sure it's never going to happen. I could say that with about 99.9% accuracy. But if I wanted to get closer to her, if I wanted to see if we were actually going to be a couple, I had to consider it. And I did. And my answer was no. No. And her answer towards me was also no. So at the end of the day there, we could have forced the issue and been terrible partners for one another. Or she could have done what she did, find someone willing to do this, who was called to do so, end up married and have children. That's a good ending. That's where God wanted her. And that's where God wanted me at the same time to not be the person to do that for. As much as it hurt, as much as I really desired that thing, it wasn't good for me to do that. It wasn't good for me to hurt her in that way. Just because we desired something being closer to one another to potentially be marriageable material, it wouldn't have worked out because where God wanted us were two separate places. Enforcing the issue would not have helped either one of us. So, with this, Abraham gets the promise that he wants. And we'll move on from there to verses uh, 10 through 14. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men in the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. What we see here is that the servant has a very bold strategy to ensure success in this journey. And one that may be leaving some of you scratching your heads. I mean, I certainly have at certain points of the time when I've read this story. It's like, why would you test God like this? Why would you do that? It's like, no, that's not what this is. This is not testing God. This is the servant. After recognizing all the good God has done for Abraham and his household and for the servant himself by extension, asking God for a sign we kind of uh, especially in a more modern age when some people are cessationists versus a continuous uh, continuationist i I for those of you who don't know cessationists believe that like the outside of very specific things like some spiritual gifts like um Now, we talked about that in Romans, didn't we? I think. Yeah. um, Outside of things like, you know, teaching and organization and stuff like that, uh, other spiritual gifts like healing and prophecy and um, tongues no longer exist in the world. Or if they do, they're very isolated incidents. That is probably as best as you're going to get with a cessationist. Uh, Me, on the other hand, I'm a continuationist. I'm someone who thinks that those gifts still remain here in this world. We just don't see them as often because they're not as needed as they were back in the day to help prove the, the miraculous power of who Jesus Christ is and who his chosen disciples were and apostles. So that could mark them. They set them apart from the other people who were practicing magic and stuff like that, who would use things for ill, use things for gain, while these people were using these miracles gifted to them by God to do good in the world but i still think it happens today i still think it is possible for someone to be healed um maybe through someone laying on hands or maybe through through prayer or something like that but right here this is not a moment in time where the servant is just like well i have no ideas god you just do whatever you want no this is like i have an idea i have a strategy god you've been faithful to my master i i want you to continue to be so and to help prove that here's a specific scenario that I'm going to have in mind. If this happens, that's the one I know. And there's a good logic behind that from what the servant has seen of God, what God has done. Now, I guess the whole point I was bringing up the cessationist continuation thing, sorry, this is what I get for not having my notes all written out as normal, is that if we do that in the modern church today, most people would tell you you're being foolish. And chances are, I would even agree with some of them. But there is such a thing as asking God for signs, asking God for information to be, this is where I should be. This is where I should go. God, if this specific thing happens, like I know you're the one behind it. Because like events in the world couldn't have conspired unless I told someone and they made it that way to make this happen. I mean, for me, it was something I wasn't asking for. I, I've talked about how I ended up going to seminary before, but for those of you who don't know, it, uh, I was actually applying online to uh, take online classes to get a teaching degree uh, and utilize my gift there because it meant I didn't have to be the person God wanted me to be because it meant that I could do whatever I wanted instead. But every time I would sign up for classes – they would disappear as soon as I hit you know, submit. I'd do it again. It would be like I did nothing. I'd do it again. It'd be like I did nothing. And eventually I broke down, told my dad and mom what was going on, uh, emailed the person in charge of all the academic stuff there that they do for their internet courses, never got a response. Wonder why that happened. Oh, it's because God didn't want them to. I mean, it was a sign I wasn't asking for, but it was a sign. And as stubborn as I was at that point in my life, I recognized the sign. God gives signs. We just have to be willing to pay attention, listen, and submit. The servant here was willing to do all three. And for that, he is rewarded. Um, I had written down a bare bones, uh, bare bones note here about camels and anachronisms. Like, uh, I could go into more detail here, but I'm not... Uh, because, frankly, I'm really not in the mood to do that. It's basically a bare-bones ideas that some uh, more liberal scholars out there think that this is an example of anachronism that uh, shows the Bible isn't literally true. Because we know for sure that camels were only domesticated around 1000 BC. Some people didn't say 900 BC. Or if they're really stingy, they'll say BCE, just to be jerks about it. But um, there's archaeological records that show that, you know, in Abraham's time, people did have camels. There's records before that in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Uh, I believe even in, um, was it was it India or Mongolia? I, if I would written down my, my notes, I would know this for sure. Like in the two thousands BC, in the three thousands BC, some evidence even in the four thousand BC. Uh, I think can't remember where that was. I want to say that was in Arabia. I'd have to look it up again, but like that domestication had begun. And even assuming that that didn't happen, you know who typically has things before other people, rich people, Abraham was loaded. Pharaoh, who earlier on gave him camels was loaded. So he's going to have access to things. Joe Schmo on the street isn't. So that's something there. It doesn't matter that much, but it, it, it irks me when people try to find things like this, say, well, that this proves everything. And it's like, I, I, number one, I'm not in any mood to have that conversation right now. But number two, it's a stupid argument. <laughs> and I, I'm going to move on before I say anything unkind. Uh, I've had to do that a lot in these past couple of days, and it has not helped me. It has helped me, I should say, that I didn't say the things that were on my brain. But it didn't make me feel good about it. I'll put it that way. You know that that sense of you wanting to uh, have that one snappy one-liner that you know shows that you're morally superior, that you're right. But God said not to say it because that's not what you were supposed to say. I had to wrestle with that a couple of times in that meeting. That's why. Oh, I, I, I tell you, like I, I left the meeting um, as soon as the speaker was done. I wanted to leave halfway through, but I kind of got a stirring in my heart that. If I did so, I was going to be asked why I was leaving, and I knew if I was called upon, I was going to say something very unkind, very non-edifying, shall we say, that I would have been saying out of hurt and maybe even out of logical rationality, but that wouldn't have mattered because it didn't matter if I was right. What mattered is where my heart was at that moment, and it wasn't after seeking God. It was after seeking making me look better in that scenario. So – there's that. Moving on, we'll go to verses 15 through 33. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether uh, excuse me, whether the lord has had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, and said, Blessed be the God, the God of my master, excuse me, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast." love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then a young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring, and as as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder. To the camels, and there was water to wash his feet, the feet of the men who were with him, and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. God's response to the servant's prayer was immediate. Has that ever happened to you? Mm-hmm. When a time when you've asked for something, and not even five seconds later, you got a phone call or you happened upon a person who was the actual answer to that prayer. Like, Oh gosh. I, I, oh, sorry. I'm realized. I, I forgot that I, uh, I also talked to my mother. See, this is how disjointed I am right now. Discombobulated. Um, this is kind of what to do, do with what's happening here. And so one of the, one of the things she told me that is similar what, you know, my pastor said, one of my dad. had said. And in light of all this, it's that same thing. It's like, you know, if if God had wanted you to be there in this scenario, it would have happened. But instead, he told you no in a way that you knew, even though you don't want to say it right now, is good for you because of how blatant it is. Here we see the exact opposite. God is saying yes, in a way that is so blatant to the servant, as opposed to what happened to me. And I love that for him. Like, would I have loved for the answer to have been yes to the thing that I really desired? Absolutely yes. But it wasn't. And a part of how I handled that situation was being angry. And to my mother's credit, she said, it's okay to be angry. Just don't remain in the anger. So you know what I did following her advice? I got the brochure out uh, that I had poured over and read the contents of several times over to make sure like, hey, this seems like a good fit to me. And I tore it up into multiple pieces and it just felt magnificent <laughs> to just hear that paper just, uh, I can't even describe the noises. That's one thing I'm really bad at. Just like, ought to hear the tear of the brochures, like, and to throw it in the trash, just felt very cathartic. So that is, that was an answer to prayer. So I wanted answers and my dad, my mom, and my pastor were able to provide that to me. So sorry for not mentioning you earlier, mom. <laughs> I think I, I, I can't remember if I did or not, but there we go. But in this scenario, like there is an answer to prayer and it's a positive answer. Even though what happened to me was also positive, I'm just not ready to say that right now. For the servant, God literally hands him what he needs the moment the prayer ends. Before he had finished speaking is, what's, is what it says. She's right there. Uh, if you want to look at this, I did have this down. Isaiah 65, 24 uh way says uh when talking about ans- uh, answers to prayer it shall come to pass that before they call i will answer and while they are still speaking i will hear there's a certain church i went to when i was in college and a little after that that was both a tremendous boon to me and offered tremendous ills at the same time some of the insecurities i had brought up earlier we're also revolving what a man is supposed to be, and in the eyes of this specific church, and I'm sure several many other churches out there. Uh, I'm sure I've said it before on the show in my usual cutesy way. It's like a real man is someone who's holding you know, a two ton bit of lumber in his left arm and his wife and two and a half children in the other arm while also throwing a football at the same time. That's what a man is. I'm not that guy. I hate to break it to you. That's not happening. So there was friction between my pastor then and I on this because he was one of those my way or the highway kind of people. Now, I agree to certain aspects within a church, you should be that way. Inerrancy in scripture, yes. You know, who the Trinity is? Yes. If I'm running that church, those things are absolutes. Now the other things I can be a little more flexible on. But it's okay. It wasn't okay then. And I grew up with I came up, it's not grew up in that moment. I had a lot of self-loathing because I wasn't fitting the model of the man that he wanted me to be. And that is something I've had to wrestle with my entire life. And I apologize for being all over the place. Like some of these things do connect to what the, the scriptures are saying here, and other things are me remembering things I should have said earlier. It it's all over the place. And I'm a little scatterbrained right now, so <laughs> extend as much grace as you can. So That that got me to the point of thinking at that point in time where I really, for the first time, had depression, had the inability to love myself, to say that I was worthy in God's eyes, because all I was hearing was, you're not good enough. You need to be this. You need to be this. How dare you resist this? How dare you try to be who God told you to be? We're not going to say it that way, though. We're going to say who God doesn't want you to be is what they would have said. How dare you be Christian Ashley, the real one, not the one that you inflate your ego about and say that's the real one. And it still stings to this day. It is it is some trauma that I have not fully gotten over, and it's going to take a lot more time. So <laughs> getting back on track, is. Uh, I'm sure there'll be something else I forgot to say in the midst of that or some other person I forgot to talk to. And there are plenty like – I'm not going to say everyone's names because um, I did talk to a lot of people, and I'm grateful – By the way, that I have such a large group of people to speak about such matters to who were willing to hear me out and ask if I, I asked several people, like, am I the wrong? Am I in the wrong for thinking this way? And there was not a single person who told me I wasn't. And I don't surround myself with yes men and yes women, if that is a term, because I don't want that. I want people who are going to tell me things straight. I want people who are going to look at me objectively and say, you were right to do this. You were not right to do that or say that. And thank God I do. So that is something I had to relearn. It's like, it's something like in the back of my head, I knew I had those people around me, but it's another thing for it to be confirmed. And that feels good. So going back to uh, the servant and Rebecca, um, it comes to the point where we see who Rebecca is moments within meeting her. A stranger, a foreigner, comes up to her, asks her for help at a time when women are going to this well to get water so that they can bring it back home. It was a lot cooler in the day to do this. It was a lot more easier to do it at this point in time. And the women, it was one of their jobs that was expected of them. And instead of focusing on her task... She sees someone in need, meets his needs, and does what he hasn't asked her to do and gives the animals water too. Now, I know you're probably out there thinking I'm some animal hater from the way I talk about nature at times, but like I love animals uh, from a distance. And this is someone like, Never when my brother's dog or my sister's dog has been in my presence, have I whipped them or beaten them just to get them away from me because I don't hate them because I don't want to mistreat them. There was even time my brother made fun of me because he was somewhere else. And I was at the house while he was visiting. And I, I saw that the, the, the food and the water weren't filled and, I'd called him like three times just to make sure that his dog would be fed and watered. He's like, no, I took care of that beforehand, but like, thanks for asking. It's like, I don't want to see any harm come to them. I'm just not uh, as much of an appreciative person as they are for that animal companionship. I'd rather study from afar. But Rebecca, on the other hand, is far better than me. She goes the extra mile and she shows a kindness in her heart. For people who were in desperate need of it, and if that doesn't show what kind of a person she is like in that one moment in time, I don't know what else is. This is like the perfect introduction to who she is. And at, in response to this, the servant gives her with part of what would be the dowry. We'll get into that in a little bit uh, later on to show how much he appreciates this, how much. She is worthy of the gifts that she is about to receive, and then he blesses God for what He has done for the sake of Abraham and his family, and that God would lead him directly where he needed to be the moment he was praying. This is a beautiful thing. And then we get to good old Laban. <laughs> Laban is one of those uh, contentious figures. In Genesis right now he's doing pretty good, but as we'll see later on he uh he's a shifty guy he's a he's a clever guy uh, a shrewd guy some would say but uh he's gonna end out on top, and this is one way he notices that like when he sees how Rebecca has been uh rewarded for what she's done here, like he senses opportunity <laughs> and Also, what appears to be, and I would say this is a very genuine sense of also loving this foreigner, this uh, person who is now uh, associated with family and brought him into the fold and given him what he needed and his camels as well so that they can rest and give him the opportunity to speak about why he's there. That is a good thing. Laban, like everyone in existence, is a complicated figure. Sometimes people don't seem complicated, but that's because we don't see everything in their lives. Laban, complicated guy. He's a wheeler and dealer, but he's also very genuine. And you know, for the most part, what you're going to get with him, even when he's conniving. So we'll move on from there to verses uh, 34 through 51. So he, the servant said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, "The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife from my son from my clan and you from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to the clan, to my clan. and if they will not give you her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering, the way did I go? Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink. And I will give you your camels, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. When Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord, We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Now, a lot of that to say what we've already said before in this chapter. And if you're like me, and you hate repetition, then that's why you can't teach really young kids as much as you love them. I'm with you 100% on that. These are not my favorite things to do with Scripture repeating the same thing that just happened a second ago. It's like it's like a flashback in an anime where uh, earlier in that same episode, we flashback to something that happened two minutes before. <laughs> or you're watching a One Piece episode and the first five minutes of it is a flashback to the last episode, which you just watched not too long ago. It, it's It's boring, but it's also scripture. Sometimes when we get to this point, in some stories in scripture, we just naturally get bored hearing something we already heard. How many times are we going to hear about how God helped the people out of uh, Egypt? Uh, how many times are we going to hear that Jesus is the son of God? How many times do we have to hear that he's got to die and resurrect on the after being on the cross? I've heard it before. I've heard all the Christmas stories. You know, watched the movie, read the book. Like, can we move on? No. We don't move on. This was written for a specific reason. And we need to be mindful of that because guess what? We know the story because this is being told to us after the fact. The people within the history that is happening in this moment in time are not privy to that same information. So the story has to be repeated for their sake. Also. It shows how seriously the servant takes Abraham's orders because he remembers pretty much everything what Abraham said word for word. I think if not word for word. And that is a good thing to look upon that and then just say, man, I am bored. I get it. I do. Like rereading the same thing is boring to me. Like if I ever catch myself and I'm, reading a book and like I'm getting a little tired and I I reread the same line multiple times over, I get angry at myself. And that's when I know I need to get to bed. But there's a purpose behind this. There's a purpose, you know, sometimes God allows the writer of whatever is, uh, whoever is writing scripture to just summarize things that we already know. And thank God for that. Other times he lets them say the exact things, maybe worded a little differently. And thank God for that what he chooses to reveal to us is glorious and beautiful no matter how bored we sometimes get with it i am dreading the day when we get to first chronicles and for the first 9 to 10 chapters it is genealogy after genealogy that does not sound fun to me, not to say that genealogies by their very nature are boring because I do like to see where people come from. I will say that reading it and actually having something to say about it is going to be very difficult. But it's still scripture, it is still breathed by God into human hands, human minds to be written down for your sake and mine. And we need to be mindful of that. And we Just because something isn't as important to us doesn't mean we get to make the judgment call that no one else should care. Because how many times has that been said to you? How many times has someone said, oh, well, uh, you know their stories. They don't go anywhere. I don't really care. Or how many times have you said a joke, but someone else said it louder and they actually laughed? Stings, doesn't it? These words matter because these people matter because God said they mattered. Remember that. So... At this point in time, we do see that there is some reverence to God in Bethuel's family. As we continue on, we're going to see how Laban kind of takes that a little less strictly than others, but that's people. So they recognize what has happened here. Trust this man who's come from a long way, who has proven who he is, has offered a dowry. And we'll get to that once after we read these last couple of verses. And now Rebecca, through with no say of her own, by the way, which we'll also get to that in a second, is going back to the land of Canaan to become the wife of a man she's never met. And we'll get to that through verses 52 through 67, and we'll finish off this chapter. I already knew this was going to be a, a long one. That's why I only wanted to do one chapter, and I made it worse by talking about all the stuff I was going through. So thanks for sticking around. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he drank, and excuse me, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and, her, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer- Beer Lahai Roy, and was dwelling in a Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So we see here, Abraham's servant doesn't delay. Then there's something to be said, and maybe it would have been better for her to stay behind, but no, they also offer Rebecca the choice of whether she wants to leave immediately. Like this is very sudden. This is <laughs> this would be someone uh from we'll just say the other side of the world, we'll just say, I don't know, uh we'll just say Pakistan, comes in and says, I've come all this way, uh my master has heard of you, and uh we want you to wed the daughter of our house. So it's like Hold on there. We got a lot to discuss there, buddy. (laughs) But Rebecca's not like that. Rebecca has thought this through. She's considered it. And she chooses to leave everything she knows behind. And this is just a further confirmation of what Abraham has desired for his son, of what the servant has been tasked to do, and that God is behind all of this because if Rebecca was a little more like me, Maybe she wouldn't have been as good for Isaac as she ends up being, you know, then there's something to be said about cautiousness and waiting and praying through things and thinking things through. And as another thing to recognize all these things are lining up, how dare I wait when God has said, go. And I think Rebecca has come to that realization. So she chooses to go. She chooses to leave her family behind, to go to a land she has never once been to, more than likely. I mean, most people never left their land behind unless they were merchants or are on military campaigns or ambassadors or something like that. Like if you were just General Joe Schmo, you stayed at home. There you go. You you work for a living. Or if you're a woman, for the most part, some would work. Some would just wait till they were married off. This culture at the time, we don't have to like it, but it is what it is. So she leaves, and in fact, this may be one of the first times she's had autonomy. Uh, we don't know, and it is her choice to do so. But I mean, judging from the way her, her family reacts to this, I would argue she probably did have some autonomy, and like, and they're very understanding and allowing her to do this, they want her to stay. You know, they're. I mean, t- in an essence, they are losing her. But let us recall: I don't have it in front of me. The scripture from Genesis two about how a young man leaves his uh, mother and father behind, and his wife becomes one with her, and what well, the woman has to do the same. And she chooses to do so of her own free will. In a time where most women would have just been told, do this, don't think about it, just do it. She does have some autonomy there. She does have some presence to be able to think for herself and do her own thing. Now, this whole dowry thing. uh, Most of the time, uh, especially in the West, you don't really see this too much. It still exists in the world, mind you. And this is, once again, a cultural thing that I'm not telling you you have to like, I'm telling you this is how it was, so wrestle with that on your own. It was compensation for a man's family to offer goods, money, services, servants, what have you, to the family of the woman who was becoming the wife of their son. Why? Because the vast majority of women didn't work. Some did, it wasn't like, They all stayed at home. But from a family like this, she probably had never once worked a day in her life. Maybe she did. They do have flocks and stuff like that. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. But chances are, no. So there's not, in their society's point of view, in their culture's point of view, she's not bringing much to the table. Once again, stress their view of things. But, in order to correct this idea in their own way, you offered compensation for taking the woman away to be the husband of someone else. That way, there was a reward for watching over your daughter for as long as you did. You know, Once again, cultural norms have changed since then. That is a good thing. So let's leave it at that. So that's why these things would happen. And... It also, once again, shows the wealth and how much God has favored Abraham with how much he gives compared to someone else. Like, this is a treasure trove. You could probably have just retired after getting some of this money and some of these riches. So it shows God's blessing. It shows his faithfulness through all of this. And it shows Rebecca's heart, too, that she seeks after what she hadn't really been thinking about so far as we are aware in the text before today. Then we get to Isaac. You see, what is he doing in this whole scenario? He's meditating. He doesn't know when the servant is coming back. His life is going to change forever. Uh, when this woman he doesn't know is coming to his home to become his wife, like, how is that going to work out? What is he supposed to do? He's never been married before. Like, how is he supposed to take care of her? His father's getting older. His mother has died. Like, what's going on here? What does he do? Well, he's learned from his dad. He's learned from Abraham. In his best moments, Abraham has sought to hear the word of God. He's sought the understanding. So he meditates, hoping for an answer to everything. And this is a. <laughs> A truly divinely appointed moment in time because while he's doing so, his wife sees – his future wife sees him from afar, sees what he's doing, asks about who he is, and according to the custom at the time, would veil her face. And that's her first impression of him. And her, the first, his first impression of her is that they're both respectful to the cultural norms of the time and to what God has expected of them. That shows how Isaac has grown. We haven't really gotten too much into his head at this point in time. We will in a little bit. And we also see how he's also like his dad in certain respects. not the not so good ones. But we'll see that. And it's a beautiful, glorious thing. This is something God has ordained to happen for this moment in time for the two of them. And it's blessed with a beautiful marriage. And it's a wonderful, gracious thing that through one of the longest chapters in Genesis, we get to have this moment in time. So where are we left with like me? Like I feel a little better after doing all this, after getting some of that out with more people kind of understanding my situation. Thank you again. I'm sorry for being so scatterbrained in the midst of all this, but like I I was trying to write the notes and they just weren't coming. So I just, just speaking off the cuff and look at this we're We're over an hour long. Thank you guys once again. We're done with Genesis 24. I will see you next week with the next couple chapters we do. Please, if you get a chance to leave a five-star review in your podcasting platform of choice, just to help us with the ratings, boosting us there. If you're interested in my own fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're interested in further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anisal Ministries podcasting network. You can contact me at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to expend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting, but don't know where to go? Well, check out Syncaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code, let nothing move you all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up so you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com. Use special promo code, let nothing move you. All right. See ya.